Well, good morning. God is good. All the time. All the time. Amen. This morning we're going to be uh, talking about joy. Deep, unshakable happiness. Peace that passes all understanding. What, what Peter calls joy, unspeakable and full of glory. This is something that our God has for us right now. Something our hearts desire, long for. But uh, this peace is something we often don't enjoy. Something that uh, our world cannot understand. Let me set the stage just a little. We uh, live in a hopeless world. Now, it may not seem that way to you on the surface. Things, in a lot of ways, seem to be going very well. The stock market continues to rise. Uh, American business seems to be doing great. We have more spendable income than ever before. Many of us drive new cars, live in nice houses. And, and even the schools seem to be doing well in spite of all the problems. Those of you who have been in school or uh, have children in school or facing the summer, uh, it's time for fun, time for vacations. And I've talked to quite a few people lately who uh, told me that there uh, it has been a lot of, of growth in, in many of their relationships, their relationship with their spouse, their relationship with their kids. In many ways, things are, are looking good. But underneath it all it is an underlying despair. Things look good as long as we don't look too closely. Things uh, are, are feeling good as long as we don't feel too deeply. We can't afford to think too much about it or it all crashes down around us. You know, we think uh, about uh, retirement and we start to wonder if we're really going to have enough by the end of the game. We uh, uh, start looking around in our relationships, and even though we see some progress, still there's a sense of loneliness in the midst of our relationship that causes us to wonder, causes us to really think. And daily, there are predictions in the financial pages that the stock market can't hold this kind of growth, that uh, uh, there's going to be corrections. Everywhere we look are the signs that this may not last. And that touches something real scary inside of us. The, the progress we see in our schools is shallow. There is an underlying pessimism in our young people that manifests itself in increased drug problems, increased sexual activity among young people. I was reading, <coughs> excuse me, reading an article the other day about the next generation. And it argued that the primary characteristic of the people now in their 20s is despair, cynicism. They've seen that marriages don't last. So why put all the effort into a long-term relationship when it's not going to last anyway? Just enjoy what you have now. And they, there's a sense that, that uh, the economy won't hold. The enormous national debt, the... the the, the soaring deficit, those are signs that uh, the financial future is bleak. So why work hard to build something that's not going to last? Why pursue a career with, with discipline and sacrifice when there's really no hope for the future? 
Just enjoy now. Enjoy what you have now. So medical news is filled every day with new causes for cancer. The food we eat, the air we breathe, even the sun that shines down on us will kill us. So why worry? Why even think about it? Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we die. And pastors are, 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 are encouraging positive thinking without telling anybody what's the basis for that thinking. The counseling profession is flourishing. Not offering answers for the future, but just helping us with, with ways to, to process the hopelessness so that we can stay happy, keep smiling. This isn't just confined, like I said, to the younger generation. These realities invade our sense of well-being. These are the things that wake us up in the middle of the night, bounce around our brains, keep, keeping us from going back to sleep. Corey Tin Boom says, uh, Worry is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. And when we allow the busyness of our lives to wane, just even for a moment, and it all starts closing in on us, our insecurities for the future. So we get up the next morning and escape into the busyness of another day so that we don't have to think about it. People in our society have grown adept at escape. We've grown adept at escape. We keep the fear at bay by by uh, busyness or by entertainments or by incessant conflict with family or friends or, or, or by drugs or alcohol, all kinds of escapes. But this isn't what our God has for us. He's got something so much better, so, so much more effective, so much more valuable. This is too puny a deliverance, just running away from the hopelessness. It doesn't last. Eventually, some problem, some loss, some uh, illness, some mistake, some failure causes the whole house of cards to collapse on us. And all along, God has something so much better, something so much more valuable. He has given us what we need for real joy right now, in the midst of an insecure and painful world. Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you haven't, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, 3. I'm just going to read the first maybe three verses to get us started. 1 Peter 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power till the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, it's important to keep in mind to whom Peter is talking to. Jackson last week told us about these people. These were Christians who were scattered all over the, the then-known world. These were people who had lost everything. They had lost their homes. They had lost their businesses. Many of them had lost loved ones. If anyone 
had reason to be hopeless for the future, these people did. And still Peter talks to them like this, you know, praise God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter himself, he wrote this letter from Rome shortly before his own execution. He didn't have much future, at least on this earth. His uh, things were tough for him. And yet he writes this way, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, these people were experiencing the things that we fear. They were experiencing the things that wake us up at night with possibilities. These possibilities had happened to these guys. And again, yet Peter talks to them like this, about praising God, about about what a wonderful deal they have, how wonderful things are for them. And I don't know about you, but to some degree... I start feeling like Peter's living in an alternate reality here. Not the one I live in. He's talking in a way that doesn't feel real. But that's ultimately the power in what he says. It is real. Part of our deliverance from from, from the unreality of, of the people that we live among, unreality of the world we live in, the way people think, the way we end up thinking. Part of our deliverance is to come to grips with reality, what is really real. Now stick with this. This is real. Now let's look at what he says, how he starts. It was common for a devout Jew to always begin with a blessing. And literally, that's what Peter does. He says... Uh, literally, blessed be God. Now, Peter's uh, blessing, his prayer is a little different. Peter isn't praying to some unknown, distant God. He is praying to the God who is like Jesus. Who looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus. Whose character is the same character as Jesus. This is the God to whom Peter can go freely, openly, because of Jesus. And Peter affirms that this God, because of his great mercy, because of his love for the helpless, for the miserable, he has caused us to be reborn into a new reality. See, the things that that Peter goes on to describe for us about what God has done, what God is doing, are things that people who haven't been reborn can't possibly understand. It just seems like foolishness to them. And quite honestly, we just barely understand them ourselves. But but we're growing. Like little babies, like infants who are newborn, we're growing into this understanding. We're starting to grasp it. When my daughters were babies, when their mommy would walk out of the room, as far as they were concerned, she ceased to exist. And that terrified them. They would wail and cry, scream, unconsolable. But as they got a little older, they realized that that perception was wrong. It wasn't real. Their mommy wasn't gone forever. She would be back. And as they learned this, they grew in peace. As we learn some of the things here, we will grow in peace. Because we'll see things as they really are. Peter says, God caused us to be reborn. Now, he's the one who did it. In fact, everything in this paragraph that we're we're starting to look at was God's doing. He caused us 
to be reborn by His mercy. He gave us a living hope. He raised Jesus from the dead. He gave us an unlosable inheritance. He shields us by His power. Right on through, everything is God's doing. God does it. One of the the terrifying things about this world we live in is the sense of vulnerability. We can't control it. We can't control the economy. We can't control the environment. It's out of control. We can't control whether we get cancer or or, or heart disease. We try this and we we say, okay, I'm going to eat these things. And the next week a report comes out that you shouldn't have been eating these things. You've messed it up. You've lost it already. We can't control these things. We can't control accidents. We can't control what other people do to us. We cannot control the future. We try, sometimes frantically, but we can't. See, for these people that Peter's writing to, the future was whirling out of control. Peter starts off saying, but it's God who is in control. He's already involved. He's already acting. He's already done these things, demonstrating, showing His mercy, showing His commitment to us. Now, what are these things? He says, we are born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, what is, what is a living hope? Well, at least... Uh, Uh, In one sense, a living hope is a hope that is dynamic and growing. It's a hope that grows stronger and and more sure with time. It's a hope that the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the God who can do anything, even put life back into a dead body, that this God can take care of whatever comes in to our lives. This God can take care of the most desperate, hopeless situations that we could ever experience. Now remember, Peter remembered firsthand what it felt like, the hopelessness when Jesus died. And it was over. All hope was gone. Here was the Messiah, the one who would save the world, and he's gone. No one left to save the world. Then God raised Jesus from the dead. Peter saw very clearly with his own eyes that God can handle anything. God can handle what happens in your life. The resurrection also demonstrates, uh, confirms God's love for us in sending Jesus to die for us in the first place. Our hope is based on historic fact, not just some supposition. But I think uh, our living hope is more than all of this. Our living hope is in our living Lord. See, our hope isn't in some philosophy, some dead religion. Our hope is in Jesus. He's alive today. Peter didn't just look back and remember Jesus. Peter continued to know him, relate to him, because Jesus was alive right then for Peter. And our hope isn't in some historic figure. Though Jesus was a historic figure. Our hope is in a living person. Jesus Christ. Ultimately, He is our living hope. And He loves us and He gave Himself for us. And we have every reason 
to hope in his continued love, his continued mercy. Peter says, God caused us also to be reborn into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Now, to understand what what Peter is suggesting here, it's important to understand the, the word he used for inheritance. We think of an inheritance as something that we look forward to, that we get someday, that we have to wait for. But the term that Peter uses implies not only something that provides for our future, but something we have already received. Barclay translates it, a secure possession. See, in ancient Israel... Land, property, belonged to a family forever. Even if for some reason you hit hard times and you had to sell off a piece of your inherited property, it only temporarily belonged to someone else. In time, it would revert back to you because legally, your inheritance, your inherited property was yours forever. And that's the term that Peter uses. A permanent Possession, something you can't possibly lose. You may not enjoy it for a short time, but you can't lose it. We have a permanent possession. Now again, remember these people that he's talking to, they uh, they didn't. They or they didn't realize that at first because they had lost everything. They had lost their, their houses, they had lost their land, they had lost their businesses. They, they had lost all of their possessions. They weren't permanent. But Peter's saying, that's all right, because you got something even more valuable, something even more precious, something that cannot be taken away, that you can't lose. Now again, these people experienced what we fear. They, they lost everything. And it's our, our desire to try to, to, to obtain a secure future. To keep what we have and to get what we need to, to, to feel safe for the future that drives us. Yet, these people discovered that that's impossible. That, that, that no matter how much we get, no matter how much we have, it can be taken. And there is no security there, the reality is we cannot gain our security through what we acquire, through what we have. Even though we continue to strive and we plot and we plan, scheme, do everything we can to gain security for the future. Peter says you don't have to. Your future is absolutely secure right now already. Anything that happens to us can't take it away. We can lose our jobs. We can lose our possessions, our property. We can even lose loved ones. And it hurts. We're going to look in a second about uh, about how much it really honestly hurts. But our future can't be taken away. Peter says it is, what's the word he uses there? Imperishable. Imperishable has, has a couple of meanings. One, it means it can't rot, can't spoil on us, can't go bad on us. But it also means that uh, the word imperishable is used 
of the effects of an invading army, the ravishing effects where an army comes in and takes what it wants by force, destroys everything else, spoils it all, ruins it all. Peter's saying, nobody can take this from you by force. Mugger can't take it. A uh, tricky lawyer or an unjust legal system can't take it from you. A better businessman can't beat you out of it. A con artist can't swindle you out of it. It can't be taken. Peter says it is not spoilable. It is unspoilable. Literally, it is. it can't be polluted. It can't be ruined, so it's no good anymore. And it's unfadeable. The word fadeable refers to a flower that wilts or a piece of clothing that wears out. What God has given us will never lose its luster. Every once in a while, I lust after a uh, new car. Think about how nice it would feel to have one in the smell of a new car and having something new, knowing how good that feels. And then I look at my car and I think, those were new ones. <laughs> and it didn't last very long. That, that, that thrill faded quickly. The excitement left pretty fast and they just turned into transportation. You see, new things do feel good. It's exciting, it's thrilling, but the thrill fades quickly. The excitement disappears. What Peter's saying is, is, is what we've been given will never fade. The thrill will never lessen. So what is this? What, what have we been given that we enjoy right now, but is also reserved for us in heaven, that, that, that takes care of our future? The way that William Barclay asked the question, he said, What is the wonderful inheritance that the reborn Christian possesses? And his answer, uh, which I agree with, is, There may be many secondary answers to that question, but there is only one primary answer. The inheritance of the Christian is God himself. The inheritance of the Christian is God himself. Listen to a, a couple of, of psalms. Psalm 16. The Lord God is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. David says, uh, God is my inheritance. And even if I don't get anything else, this is a wonderful deal. I am delighted with the deal. It is a beautiful deal as far as David is concerned. Psalm 73. You are always with me. You hold, hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom, I've, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is my strength and my inheritance, my possession forever. See, if God is for us, who can be against us? If He loved us enough to send His Son to die for us, how could we possibly imagine He won't give us everything? If you have God, you have everything. Now let me ask you a third grader question. If you could have one wish, what would it be? Now, every kid, third grade up, knows the right answer to that. I would wish for 
all the wishes I could ever want. But no genie is going to show up and give you your one wish. That's not reality. But the reality is, when you've got God, you have it all. He's God. He owns it all. He is in control of it all. And you are His kids. See, when you've got God, you've got everything. He can and He will take care of us. He loves us. He's already demonstrated that, proven that. When we have Him, we have everything. And He will, Peter says, He will guard us, shield us through our faith until it's all over and we get it all, till we get heaven, being with Him directly in His presence, enjoying that presence forever, eternity with Him. Now let me un- unpack that last part of verse 5 real briefly before we hurry on. Peter said that we, that God shields us through faith. Now, first of all, that, that term shield means to protect with a garrison. A garrison, when, when some, a garrison is a, an encampment of, of troops, a, a, a camp. This is the most secure thing these people could imagine. To be absolutely surrounded in every direction by armed troops, protecting them from every direction. Peter says, well, you've got it better than that. Better than Fort Knox. Better than the best witness protection program possible. You are protected by the power of God himself. Absolutely secure. And he says that God protects us by faith. This is very important to understand exactly what Peter is suggesting here. What Peter is saying here. He is not saying... You are protected if you have enough faith. Like it depends on you to come up with enough faith to make sure that protection holds. And if your faith wanes, the protection will wane. Man, if that was the case, it would be pretty flimsy protection. Now, your protection is as good as God Himself. But God uses your faith to protect you. The faith that He has given is what He uses to protect you. Now, how does that work? Well, He uses that to protect your hearts, your emotions. See, the objective reality is that you are absolutely secure by God's power. But to enjoy that objective reality, to get the subjective benefit of that objective protection, you've got to trust Him. About a year and a half ago, I I had surgery on my back. Surgery room went well. By all medical measurements, it was a successful surgery. No problems, no complications. But that first night, as I was coming out of the anesthetic, I was confused. I was disoriented. I was terrified. There were nurses all around taking good care of me. There was every kind of medicine and equipment that I could possibly need. But I was still scared. I ended up asking Becky to spend that first night in the hospital with me. Now, why? Because I trusted her. Those doctors, those nurses would have taken wonderful care of me. But I couldn't enjoy that objective reality. Because in my disoriented state, I didn't trust them. I trusted Becky. And she, because of that trust, that protected my heart. 
and my emotions. You see, you are secure in God. He has taken care of everything. But if you don't trust Him, you will continue to feel exposed and vulnerable, profoundly insecure, afraid at your core. It's faith. It's trusting Him that will protect your heart and your emotions. Now let's hurry on to the next uh, couple of verses, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says in this, and by this he's referring to that protection that God provides, that relationship with God. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. The word means to be intensely happy. It refers to a soaring spirit. He says, in this your spirits soar, even though you may, for a little while, be suffering all kinds of grief. Now this is the mysterious part. Peter's saying that our spirits soar, even though we're going through things that really, really hurt the word he uses there for suffering grief is a specifically emotional term. It's talking about really hurting emotionally. And the reality is we go through things that really hurt. This is, a, this is a very serious word, not to be taken lightly. He's talking about deep, profound grief and pain and loss. He says, we go through things that hurt deeply. We go through divorce. We, we go through loss of a loved one. We go through prolonged illnesses and, and business uh, job pressures, financial stress, broken relationships. And it really hurts. This is critically important. God protects us through pain, not from pain. But it helps, I think, to understand this pain. First of all, Peter uses an interesting word when he said that uh, literally what he says is, even though it is necessary for you to suffer grief. A little word there that means necessary. It's the same word that's used of Jesus' sufferings. They were necessary. Why? Because the only way God could save humanity, save you and me. See, it's important to understand at the outset, the, the, the bigger picture, that God doesn't just throw loss and pain at us for fun. He does what's necessary. Lamentations 3.33 makes this clear. It says, For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. God does not like pain. God hates damage and destruction, harm. 
But right now, in this world we live in, it is necessary. As God is still about the business of saving people, of exposing people who live in darkness through the light, through us, His light in us, we get hurt. The darkness always will hate the light and try to destroy it. And we live in a contaminated world that's full of disease and destruction, pollution and pain. So for now, as we are God's instruments to expose people to His love, to bring people to Himself so that they can experience His love, we will get hurt. It's the fact. It's necessary. And it's real pain. But you see, not only does God only allow what's necessary, but He doesn't waste that pain. He uses it to refine our faith, to clean it up. Again, it's important to understand exactly what Peter's talking about here. He uses the term trials, tests, to refer to these hard, painful things that we go through. But don't be mistaken. It's not a test like a pass-fail, like the pressure's on you to see if you've got enough guts to make it through it. That's not what's going on. He's talking about testing our faith in the sense of putting it in the heat to refine it, to burn off the impurities, to clean it up so that it's even better, it's even more valuable, it's even more precious. Just like gold is put in the furnace to burn out all of the impurities, all the junk that's mixed in there. So our faith is put in the furnace to to, to burn out all the contaminants, all the stuff, the junk in us that robs us of our true joy, that robs us of our ability to really trust God and enjoy what He has already done for us. Realize, Peter says, this is the most valuable thing that you own, your faith. It's more valuable than gold. For them back then, gold was the symbol of the most valuable thing you could ever, ever possess. Peter says, man, this is worth a whole lot more when it comes to your happiness. This is far more valuable. Because this is the key to joy. So you can be a billionaire and be absolutely miserable. Some of you don't believe that. But it's true. You can be the absolute dictator of a whole country. Everyone for 100 miles in every direction has to do everything you say when you say it. If you want something, you say, give it to me, and it is. And still be absolutely filled with fear and insecurity. You see, these things aren't the key to our joy. We try to get stuff we, we try to, to insulate ourselves with things or with power or, or, or with relationships. Or we, we go after all of these things because we want joy. But these cannot give them to us. But faith is the only thing that can bring joy to us. And yet, we don't grasp this. We are so ready and willing to compromise our faith to compromise our relationship with God, to get these other things, to, get, to gain wealth or, or influence, position, advancement, to, to, to gain relationships or escape. 
And if we saw reality, it would be the other way around. Rather than giving up something of true value that can give us what we want for stuff that can't, we'd be quick to give up money, to give up power, to give up anything for this treasure, for faith. Because it can give us what we want. If we saw reality, it would always be the other way around. And often, it's only after God burns away everything else that we've got. When all we have left is faith that we start to see reality. It's often only after God is the only thing we have that we realize that He is all that we need. Ask people who've been there. Ask people who've lost a loved one. Ask people who've lost everything they have. Maybe even some who've gone to prison for Christ. Ask people who've lost their health. They won't say it feels good. And we're talking real, crushing, overwhelming pain. That is reality. And we should never be so superficial and stupid to imply that someone shouldn't feel pain. That, that, that somehow that's lack of faith. If they only had faith, they wouldn't feel pain. That is wrong. It's cruel and it's stupid. But as our lust for all these other things begins to get burned out of us, stripped away from us, what we're left with is a refined, a purified faith the most valuable thing we could ever have that results in praise and glory and honor. There's a beauty to people with this kind of refined faith that that, that defies description. It's interesting, Peter says that we will receive this glory and uh, this praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The word there for reveal means to be unveiled. It's something that's hidden, is exposed. What's, what he's talking about is that fact that Jesus is here. He's with us all the time. You can talk to him anytime you want. But it's in the midst of the fire that his presence is unveiled. It's exposed. He stands in the furnace with us. And again, it's our faith that lets us hold on to that reality. Now, I'm pretty well out of time. Now, let me just read the last couple of verses, because this is the most beautiful description of what that faith looks like that I've ever seen. The most beautiful description of what faith is. See, Peter walked with Jesus face to face, talked with him. The reason Peter believes, at least what Jesus says, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Peter marvels at these people's faith. Listen to what this faith is. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, faith is loving our Lord Jesus even though we can't see Him. Even though we still don't see Him, it's believing in Him. 
trusting Him, counting on Him, resting in Him. Being so convinced that He's all that we need, that we just keep coming back to Him, keep looking at Him, falling in love with Him over and over, trusting Him even though we don't understand. He says there are two things that come out of this. First is that inexpressible joy. You just can't put it into words. In fact, it is not reasonable. In the midst of the worst pain that we ever go through, we find a profound, intense peace and happiness. It is not reasonable, but it is real. The second thing that we get is what he says, the salvation of our souls. The word there means deliverance. Our souls are delivered from all of the things that rob us of that joy, that distract us, that that, that pull us off to looking for life in all the wrong places. Our souls are delivered from the lies and confusion that rip us off from the joy that God wants to give us. And in love with Jesus, we taste the pure and undiluted joy of heaven. We'll experience with Him forever. A little over a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, our sister, Pat Mitchell, went to be with the Lord. As uh, her uh, time drew near, as the, the cancer in her body robbed her of more and more of her strength, more and, and more filled her body with pain, she began to see her Lord Jesus more and more clearly. Till the moment when she opened her eyes and saw for the very first time her Lord Jesus, whom she had loved for so many years without seeing. Her faith reached its appointed end. See, life is hard. There are many joys, but if we're honest, we've got to face the fact that life is filled with pain. Life is hard, then you die. For those of us who have been, by God's mercy, reborn into a living hope and into an unlosable salvation, there is a freedom and there is a joy. A joy that grows sweeter and sweeter for eternity. So as you're... Facing things in your life as you're going through times of intense pain or loss. You're going through the the nagging chronic pain and fears. As things come into your life that disrupt and hurt. Recognize, realize what's going on, what's happening. You're being given an opportunity to see reality. You're being given an opportunity to have your faith clarified. You're being given an opportunity to say right in the midst of all of the fear and, and, and the pain and the loss, to say, my Jesus, I love thee. To have your heart swell with inexpressible joy. And this is the best that life has to offer. Sell everything to gain this treasure. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you 
give us doses of reality. Because so often it just, we are so caught up in the unreality of this world that the truth sounds hollow and empty. Thank you for Peter's words calling us back to truth, calling us back to what we have, the enormous riches that we have in Christ. Lord, we just uh, ask that you open our eyes, that we see clearly. I thank you for the testimony of so many here who have been in the furnace, who have felt that inexplicable joy, the peace that passes all understanding. I thank you for the strength to my own faith that that gives me as I see and I wonder. doesn't make sense, Lord. Your grace is not there in theory. It's only there in reality. Lord, I pray for those who are in the furnace now, that they might see you standing next to them, that they might find the grace to tell you they love you, to feel that peace and joy. I pray for each of us who are not currently in the furnace, that we would believe these things, walk by them, and experience the freedom and joy, even today. pray this in your name. Amen.